Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, who am I but Chris Steyerwalt? And who am I but Eliana Johnson? Quite so, madam. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and, in fact, what is going right with the American news media. We are recording remotely, Eliana Johnson, so I don't know what your breakfast is today, but what is, will you, will you please share with the class what your breakfast is? I'm having an egg and cheese sandwich on toasted multigrain, and I have here both a large coffee and a Red Bull. Oh, this is... Uh... As I was up quite late after the debate and and awake early this morning. As was I, and I just so that everybody feels comfortable, I had a pile of lunch meat for breakfast today. So I... I was going to say, I don't even need to ask you the question, Mac, because we know you had very, a bag of meat. Very, very often, I don't have breakfast or I have a late breakfast and I have an elaborate breakfast of various meats and eggs and cheeses and avocados and all manner of, of good and delicious high fat content. But today on the go, it was a bag of ham. And you know what? I'm here for it. I, I appreciate the ham and it was delicious. Chris. Front page today is all debate. All Republican debate that took place last night. We're recording Thursday morning. Debate took place last night at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California. And I think the major question is, did this debate make any difference in the trajectory of this Republican primary? Meaning, not did anyone emerge as did anyone make headway in beating Trump but did anyone emerge as a more plausible number two who could seize the mantle should something happen to Trump and did Trump make the right decision in going to Michigan and speaking at a factory and skipping this debate what are your thoughts well first tell me what you thought of the debate I thought the debate was horrible hard to watch uninteresting there were a few good moments that came in the second half. And I want to look at that camera right now and tell you, Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight, not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. All right. One thing I'm struck by is that the people tuning into this, you know, maybe there are some Democratic political junkies, but these debates are for Republican voters to make up their minds. And so many of the questions I thought were about issues that are of very little interest to Republican primary voters. There was a question about what are we going to do for the dreamers, which, you know, maybe it may be a good question in a general election debate, but um, not of particular interest to Republican primary voters. There was a question about gun safety. Again, not of particular interest to Republican primary voters, who I think would be more interested in answering something about what are we going to do to expand and protect your gun rights? And then the final question, it was like Fox didn't learn from their final question about UFOs in the last debate. The who would you vote off the island was just it was unserious. 
Well, I thought it was a pretty good debate. I thought it was an improvement and I thought it was, I thought the questions were pretty well crafted. When you have a partner like Univision, Univision is going to ask Univision questions and that's, that's sort of to be expected. But I thought the questioning was, was better crafted. And I thought that there were, when you're doing a debate, you can't just say, Hey, Joe Biden, that guy, that guy's the worst, right? Yeah, I totally agree. You have to ask them hard questions and uncomfortable questions. And I thought they, I thought they moved the ball on that. The, the real challenge, of course, here are people's expectations. And every four years, so I've been covering presidential elections since really 2004, 2008, in full swing. And what I have observed in each cycle is that people want to believe that it will be different this time or that the rules that are around primary elections can be suspended, whether it's Jeb Bush and Right to Rise or Ron DeSantis' super PAC or, and, and we'll see, we'll talk here in a minute about whether Donald Trump really can do that this time. But the idea that you're not going to have to have these somewhat squalid debates, right? And the truth is, and I think Vivek Ramaswamy demonstrated that he, he understood the assignment. So in the first debate, he got in there, he was, you know, in people's face, he was argumentative. This time it's Reagan's 11th commandment. We shall not, you know, we're not going to criticize my fellow Republicans and trying to play peacemaker of all things. So the truth is that you have all these folks on stage who are fighting over what is essentially 30% or so of the Republican vote right now. That's who's interested. And they're going to have to fight it out. Tim Haley or Tim Haley, <laughs> Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, they have to fight with each other because they're fighting for exactly the same votes, not just the same swath of the Republican Party, but they're from the same state. There is conflict there. There's conflict between these candidates and the idea that folks had that they could either ignore the other people on stage and focus on Trump, or they could ignore Trump and ignore the other people on stage and focus on Biden. This just has, this is just, it is lamentable that this is the condition of the ways in which our once great parties choose their nominees, but this is the game that they have to play. A couple of thoughts on that. The first is that nobody decreed from on high that Univision must participate in these debates. Sure, there are reasons. You know, you can have a debate about that, but nobody said Univision the, must the participate. The RNC said. Right. But I would argue that's a mistake. That's a mistake. So, so that's the first point. I think that was a bad decision. And the second is... There was just no control over the candidates. There was way too much talking over each other. And I think that's, you know, I, nobody's going to sit here and say the moderators have an easy job. Like, that's an incredibly difficult job. But again, it, I thought there was worse control over the candidates than there was in, in the first debate. I hear you. But the candidates, also, the candidates also figure out, you saw Tim Scott. He got panned, rightly, for a lackluster performance in the first debate. So what do you got to do? You got to you got to get in there. You have to get talk time. And the problem, you know, you have a not a crowded stage. Ten is a crowded stage. but You have a relatively crowded stage and you have to get talk time. You have to be on camera. And again, I want to stipulate this is not 
the most rational way for the parties to choose their nominees. Primary elections are not a rational way for the parties to choose their nominees. But in this game, that's what you're going to do. And one big improvement in terms of control, they cut the mics, which is really an asset. I can tell you from having been part of planning these, cutting the mics is crucial. And what happened the last time was without the ability to shut off those microphones, you had lots of inter- This time there was like, it was, sounded like a subway station up there sometimes as there was this cacophonous din across the stage. But at least there was some vehicle for control. So do you think Trump made the right decision skipping the debate? Well, he made a better decision than he did the previous time. So when he did the Tucker Carlson on Elon Musk's ex the first time, he didn't really impinge on the the main event because it was happening in an alternate space by going to Detroit and doing something that sounded initially audacious, right? He's going to meet with the union. He's going to have union workers there. But he ended up doing something a little less than, right? He went to a non-union shop and he didn't, the UAW refused to meet with Trump, which I think was probably a mistake on the part of the United Auto Workers. But but he was doing something not only a little audacious and newsworthy, Republican frontrunner goes to express sympathy for striking auto workers, but he also did it on TV and everybody could cover it. And he got the kind of roadblock coverage that he used to get on the regular. So this was a chance for him to give his stump speech. And I will also say he was fairly disciplined for a guy who is, I'm sure, bouncing off the walls from a judge's ruling in New York, stripping him of control of business assets. And with all of this stuff going on, he didn't, he did not, he was mostly restrained in talking about the 2020, mostly restrained in talking about the 2020 election. He was mostly on topic. So I, Yeah, if you're going to skip the debate, this was definitely a better way to skip the debate. I agree with that. And I thought I didn't think the tactic employed by Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie of slamming Trump for skipping the debate really worked for them. Christie's line of calling Trump Donald Duck was memorable, but not in a good way. It seemed rehearsed and it fell flat. And DeSantis, I remember that he criticized him, but he didn't really have a memorable line from the debate. And I just thought that when the candidates are up there talking about Trump and highlighting his absence, it has a sort of diminishing quality for them. And the best moments of the debate were when the candidates were sparring with each other. I thought, you know, when Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy sparring with each other over TikTok, I thought that was a great exchange. And they're often and usually about things that don't have anything to do with Donald Trump. So I didn't I didn't think the tactic of slamming Trump for skipping the thing really worked. Yeah, I generally agree. I think you have to you have to pressure him. You have to say something. I don't know that it ultimately is successful, but I think pointing out that he's not there is important. We don't know what the ratings were for this debate. I expect that they'll be less than the first one because the it's the Fox business, not Fox News. So there's probably some ding there, but be interested to see what the numbers were. And as for Haley, she was she had success in the first debate by being pugnacious, by being in people's face and doing it. I thought it was a little, I think it was a little too much this time. I thought it was, I, 
I thought she was leaning into that too much. The first time it was like, oh, look at this. Look at this spunky lady who is here to mix things up. This time it felt more like a, it, it felt more canned. Now, the Trump campaign, Chris Lasavita, his top strategist, uh, is calling on the RNC to cancel the remaining debates. And I wonder whether you think the RNC will do that. I don't think the RNC can be seen to be taking orders from the Trump campaign. And I think there will be more debates. What I do think is that the threshold for qualification is going to ratchet up quite significantly. And there will be far fewer candidates on the stage at debates number three and four. I just think the RNC cannot. If Trump says cancel the debates, the RNC cancels the debates. That's not going to happen. Trump also said he won't be attending the third debate in Miami, of course. But No, I don't think they're going to cancel the debates. I think they're going to happen. But I do think we're going to see far fewer candidates from this debate on out. And I will say, I think your view on Nikki Haley seems to be the consensus view. I actually thought she was good. I thought she seemed the most polished and professional on the stage. And I I just didn't have that impression of her. And so I think I'm the outlier on that. Well, insofar as she is right now in a two-person race with Tim Scott, I think Scott did better than he did the first time, but I think she still got probably the better of him because that's the race looking for who are the traditional conservatives going to support? Where's the, where is the Reaganite uh, wing of the Republican Party going to land? I don't think Scott had a breakout moment to pull ahead of her. And so to, to that extent, it probably it, it, it wasn't maybe as good as the first time. But it was probably still enough to keep her position in the lead in that little dyad. Should we move to Joe Biden? Joe Biden. Crooked Joe. Crooked Joe. Crooked Joe. Polling. Well, what about Commander? I was going to do. I was going to reverse the order here and do the polling. You got to lead with Commander. Uh, this is the this is the right, scandal right, of we'll our do time. Commander first. Commander biting another Secret Service officer. He's going to leave being the best-known White House dog. I mean, it has to be. NPR reports the German Shepherd is known to have bitten several agents a total of 10 times between October 22, 22 and January 2023. That's a pretty short time span. That's I, I enjoyed NPR's coverage particularly because of the playful usage of the word nipped. He nipped. He's the nipper. He just nipped a little bit. Then you see a picture of this German Shepherd police dog, and you say... I don't think I would care to be nipped uh, by Commander. Uh, this is uh, not like when, do you remember, I forget whether it was the Bush's Scotty dog, either Barney or Ms. Beasley, who snapped at the fingers of, I think, a Reuters reporter long ago, many, many moons ago. But the Biden's inability to find a suitable dog for the White House is, to me, very emblematic of the struggles of this administration. What about the poll, Chris? The Washington Post ABC News poll had Biden trailing by 10 points. And they say they had to caveat it, saying the poll is an outlier. They say the difference between this poll and others, as well as the unusual makeup of Trump's and Biden's coalitions in this survey, suggests it is probably an outlier. And I want to just say, I just want to say, as a person who's been around this kind of stuff for a long time, then why are you publishing it? Why are you publishing a poll that you are going to disclaim in your own newspaper? 
that's eh, probably bunk. Here's this poll. We spent a bajillion dollars on it, but it's probably bunk. But here it is anyway. This to me was an extraordinary failure. I think the poll is probably an outlier in the sense that every other poll said, uh, no, it's not probably an outlier. It's certainly an outlier because every other poll puts the race for a general election matchup between the two as tied, right? Every other one says, is, is it 47-50? Is it, you know, what? But they're, they're all agreed on that. So my question for the Washington Post and ABC News is, why didn't you redo the poll? If you have a poll that you think is an outlier, why are you publishing it? Start over, get a new sample, spend the dough, or don't publish the poll. Chris, Axios had a scoop this week. Zoom in, zoom in, Eliana. We've got to zoom in that Biden's team is preoccupied with not allowing him to trip on the campaign trail. Going to be a hell of a race between Biden and Trump. Zoom in. Some senior Democrats privately have been frustrated with Biden's advance team for months, citing the sandbag incident. That's when he fell on a stage and tripped over a sandbag and noting that the president often appears not to know which direction to go after he speaks at a podium. Often without context, Republicans have used video clips of Biden looking confused about where to go after speeches to raise further questions about his age. Biden's team is betting that any mockery he receives over using the shorter Air Force One steps and wearing tennis shoes will be worth it to avoid another public stumble. Well, you can be sure of that. Republicans have used those clips. Can you imagine Republicans have used those clips? Because otherwise, if they had the proper context, Americans would not be concerned about the obvious shuffling gait and evident <laughs> confusion of their commander in chief. If only Republicans weren't pouncing so hard on this. I the my big takeaway from sitting and watching Trump's speech in Detroit, which was, you know, I mean, I, I will say this. It, it, Trump is boring now in the sense that it's, you know, we know all the gags. We know all the stuff. But he is in he is in 2016 form. Right. He is. He is ready. He is energetic. He is all of that stuff. And then when you looked at Biden in Detroit the day before, he looks terrible. Right. He looks small and stooped and shuffling and walking around with that bullhorn was, I mean, the, the, the problem for Democrats, the problem for political strategists in general, they're obsessed with optics. They want to believe that the things that they do can improve the optics. But in truth, voters look at Joe Biden and correctly say that one of the most significant polls in recent memory was the one that said that more Americans thought, I think it may have been Quinnipiac, but said that Americans had substantially more confidence in Donald Trump, Donald Trump to handle a crisis than Joe Biden. And there's, you know, not to repeat the chorus that rings out every day in the Washington press, but I don't see how Joe Biden a year from now is 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 the democratic nominee i just i i'm i know that statistically i know that uh precedent i know all of those things say that he will be but when you look at him and you look at stories like this and the anxiety inside the democratic party i just i i know it's likely to happen i just don't see how i agree with you there's a incredibly Washington instinct to think every problem is a communications problem or an optics problem. And with Bright with Biden's age and physical and mental condition, you have a problem problem yeah, that's that right. cannot be solved other than by uh, putting him away 
And and they do a fair amount of that. We already know, you know, he only does events between 10 and 4. And he won in 2020 by essentially hiding in his basement they should, and not really campaigning. They should go back to that. But it's a problem problem that can't be solved by having him climb up and down fewer stairs. This needs to be, they need a Brezhnev solution, right? He just needs to have a cold. They say he's not coming out right now. He'll he'll be back soon, we promise. And then you can like catch a fleeting glimpse of him. And by the way, when he went to Detroit, and that that joking aside, when he went to Detroit, he should have looked presidential and gone and had a meeting with the head of the UAW, waved at reporters on his way out and left. He should have also gone and met with the management side to cover all bases. But having him out there looking sad with a little clutch of picketers, that was a mistake. Chris, we have a national review piece here. The great Noah Rothman. Headline, Americans don't believe Biden's economy is good because that's a lie. And Noah writes, this is a lot of psychic energy to devote to the idea that Americans cannot comprehend their own environments. The voting public surely noticed that nearly everything, save certain commodities and used cars, became more expensive in August. Americans have not succumbed to a false consciousness if they're aware that even though the rate of inflation is slowing, prices are still rising on an annual basis, and they're rising on an annual basis from a point at which they were already frustratingly high. If Americans assume that the stock market is performing poorly or unemployment is up or GDP growth is stagnant, it's not because they've been bamboozled by the Svengali's on their TV. It's because they have reason to believe the economy is in rough shape. And having not checked every macroeconomic index produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics first, they assume that condition is manifesting uniformly across the economic spectrum. Spot on. Hit it right on the screws. And I will further say, we just had a poll at News Nation from our partners at Decision Desk HQ. What's the number one issue for voters? And by a lot, by... 30 or 40 points. Inflation. This is not this is not a mystery. I would point anybody who wants to to the episode of the remnant I recorded with the great historian, writer, journalist, human being Amity Schles in in her book about Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. What wrecked politics in the late 60s and 1970s? What what was it? What what crushed everything? And all of the grandiose post-war dreams in both parties. Vietnam was part of it, but it was inflation. It was inflation. It was inflation. And with gas prices going back up and prices for food high, middle-class persuadable voters are feeling the pinch more than other people. And there's no sophistry in speaking of uh, very inside Washington things. There's no economist sophistry that will change that reality until prices come down. Or, by the way, this is another good example of where the White House and Biden's advisors say, this is a communications problem. We have to go sell Bidenomics. And this is a problem problem. There were two, there were a couple of interesting pieces about this this week. The first, I think, was in Bloomberg, noting that all but the top 20% of income earners have exhausted their pre-pandemic savings. And another noting that because of the interest rates, people who are out trying to buy homes and cars are just getting far, far less for their money. 
And those are things that people can see with their own eyes. Sugar, you can't message around it. The sugar high of, because remember, we didn't just have the pandemic spending. We have been juicing the economy since the panic of 2008. We have been pumping and quantitatively easing and deficit spending. We were deficit spending when we had 4% annualized GDP growth. With a booming economy, we were still running huge deficits because neither party wanted to live with the short-term consequences of tightening things up. So now we're in the long rain shadow that is coming after that as a result of the inflation that all of that caused. And there's not a quick fix and people will not be convinced if as gas goes back, I don't know what gas costs in actual America, but in the Washington, D.C. Metroplex, as gas gas pushes back up towards four dollars a gallon, you can do I've done it. Maybe I'll ask Nate Moore to do it again, but you can plot the president's job approval rating and the price of a gallon of unleaded gas. And the the correlation is strong. Chris, we have Mark Thompson taking over CNN and Meet the Press drama. Okay, so did you watch the Trump interview on Meet the Press with Kristen? Oh, I saw the Trump interview. What describe for our fellow wretches what what happened? It was a typical Trump interview where Kristen Welker, the new moderator of Meet the Press, and we should play a couple of clips from that, was interviewed Trump and he spewed his usual, you know, barrage of untruths. And and she didn't spend the entire time interrupting, fact checking. You know, she tried to do it, but it was just a typical Trump interview. We, and we talked, I think, last week about how few tough interviews Trump does and how a handful of people, Megyn Kelly, Brett Baer, Jonathan Swan, a handful of people have been able to do a tough interview. I don't know what the thinking was here about having her first, her very first Meet the Press interview be with a person who is impossible to interview unless you're ready to go to war, Right. So Chris Wallace, right? You can interview Trump, but you have to be ready for war. You have to have, it has to be adversarial. And Kristen Welker was, is immediately criticized on the left because people thought, well, we've finally gotten rid of that quizzling Chuck Todd. We finally forced NBC to unhorse Chuck Todd. And now we will finally have a progressive champion on Meet the Press. So unfair, high expectations for her and an unfair situation that they put her into. Let her let her work it out for a few weeks and then try it for goodness sakes. I would I would qualify that by saying if you're if you're in the mainstream, they want some adversarial smackdown. If you're on the right, like Megyn Kelly, I mean, her interview with Trump was not heated and adversarial she was able to challenge him in ways that where it didn't get hot, but he didn't look good. Ad, when I say adversarial, I mean, you're not on the same side. You are you are adversely arranged around what you want to have happen here. And that should be true in every interview, which is to say the politician wants your platform to get exposure and get attention, maybe even get negative, may, maybe that you get negative partisanship points because you're fighting with them or whatever. 
the adversity is supposed to stem from the fact that the journalist wants to get to the facts and hold people accountable. I think Megyn Kelly did that very well, but that's not the same as being confrontational or unpleasant or because that actually ends up not being as hard of an interview because then it's fake tough, right? Oh, I, I, I asked you these questions in a snarling, sneering way, and then you can dismiss them and then you can blow, blow me off. What Megan did, what Jonathan Swan did, what, all, what the people who have successfully interviewed Trump have done is to be adversarial without being hostile. We should have put this up in our little segment about Trump speaking in Michigan. AOC pressed on Face the Nation about why she drives a Tesla. I, I which... put I put I put this here just because the point the point of the piece from Puck is, and I think quite right. Who cares about the Sunday shows? They're just shows. There's no special cachet to being Meet the Press or whatever. But I wanted to give a nod to Face the Nation for asking a delightfully adversarial question to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Yes. So they asked her why she drives a Tesla, which, of course, Elon Musk's company, not unionized. And this is has been we've had a lot of fun with this at the Free Beacon, because not only does AOC drive a Tesla, she often it's often been spotted parked illegally at, at various outposts in Washington, D.C. And she let's play the clip. You were quoted back in July saying you look forward to buying a union made electric vehicle, but you buy but you currently have a non-union made mm -hmm. Tesla. UAW already makes some electric vehicles. So yes. why wasn't that? Is it a problem with the the quality? Is it a problem with the style? Is the market just not there? Uh, no, the, our car was purchased uh, during the pandemic when travel mass, before a, a vaccine had come out. So travel between New York and Washington, the safest way that we had determined was an EV, but that was prior to um, some of the new models coming out on the market that had the range available. Uh, but we're actually looking into trading in our car now. So we're looking into it and hopefully we will soon. So as you can hear, gentle listeners, it was the pandemic's fault. She didn't want to have to buy a non-union made car from a company owned by Elon Musk, but she had to do it for, for Gaia, for, for the pandemic. It's not her fault. Chris, that brings us to our mini foreign section where we have 60 minutes discovering that the U.S. is financing more than just weapons in Ukraine. The government is also supplying seeds and fertilizer for farmers, paying the salaries of 57,000 first responders, and subsidizing small businesses. The standard for 60 Minutes discovering things must have gotten a lot lower because if their discovery was that they read the press releases from the federal government to discover this, then Mike, Mike Wallace's legacy is not in, in good standing. And then I, this is a piece I have not had a chance to read, but you sent this yesterday in the Atlantic. The next supercontinent could be a terrible, terrible place. Just this is included in the our, our standing trope around everything is awful. And it just cracked me up because in the Atlantic, the next supercontinent could be a terrible, terrible place. A new study predicts that one giant hot, dry landmass is looming in Earth's future. And I kept hoping that this was a joke. I, I kept wanting it to be tongue in cheek as I read this piece from Nancy Walecki, but it did not. Be afraid. You think global warming's bad. 
continental drift in 250 million years, they tell us, will produce this terrible, terrible future. And what should be an article that is just says, oh, a bunch of nerds who aren't sure think maybe this is what the supercontinent of a quarter quarter billion years from now may look like. Instead, it was everything is awful. And just the, the obsession with the love of everything being awful cracks me up. Finally, Chris, we've reached our style section. And this really is one I've been waiting to talk about all week. David Brooks of New York Times fame sent a tweet last week from the Newark airport. Mm. And it was a photograph of a partially eaten eaten cheeseburger and french fries that had a glass of whiskey or some kind of dark liquor in the background and said, this meal just cost me $78 at Newark Airport. This is why Americans think the economy is terrible. Now, the press coverage says, New York Times columnist David Brooks set off one of the all-time worst social media ratios in history when he posted his tweet last night complaining about how much his meal cost because, of course, 80% of his $78 tab was booze. Yeah. And 18 bucks was his cheeseburger and fries. And I will say the restaurant in the airport was amazing. They they made lemons. They made lemonade out of these lemons and they they had a great time with this. They named David Brooks special burger combo with scotch for 17.78. They threw in the free scotch, but this was this was amazing. I mean, he must have been very drunk when he tweeted this. I don't I don't know, but I will just say two things. Never tweet. Don't don't do it. And if you are a media personality, don't complain about your travel circumstances. Actually, if you're anyone, don't complain about your travel circumstances on social media. Come on Inkstained Wretches to talk about people who talk on airplanes or men who wear flip-flops. Yes. But don't go and say, this costs so much, or I had to wait so long, or my flight was delayed, or any of that stuff. Nobody wants to hear it. And just just hit delete. Just hit delete, America. Next up. Oh, well, this, this, is, this could have been my obsession. So as a proof of concept, Taylor... So uh, did you know who Travis Kelsey was before this week? No, of course not. Okay. So Travis Kelsey, of course, the the great tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, famous because he and his brother, who is the center for the Philadelphia Eagles, played in the Super Bowl against each other. Their mom is a, a media figure, all of her own in the sports world. So Travis Kelsey, who has hosted Saturday Night Live, who is a person of, of, some, of some considerable note, is apparently dating Taylor Swift. And the hunger to get in on what turned out to be this massive media sensation story, right? Because two streams aligned, sports addicted and celebrity addicted, husbands and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends, brothers and sisters, finally had a story that they could both talk about because Taylor Swift went to a football game. And I include here raw story, which says Taylor Swift squeeze Travis Kelsey helped fund Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham campaigns. Well, do you know what Travis Kelsey actually did? Travis Kelsey gave money to the Players Association that gave money to the National Republican Senatorial Committee. So 
yeah, yes, I, I guess that the $500 or whatever that he gave to the pack that represents his union, I guess so he did. It's this is the kind of trash that when you get a story like this, all of the I'll use the analogy of a whale that dies and falls to the bottom of the ocean. When you get a story like this, it starts dying immediately. Like the, it reaches its peak in the moment that Taylor Swift is at the game. But as it settles to the bottom of the ocean and all the crabs and bottom dwellers come out and start feasting on it in our atomized media landscape, that's what happens with a story like this. And this is the, this is the fabulously effulgent example of bottom dwellers dwelling. What about the largest newspaper chain in the United States, Gannett, hiring Taylor Swift and Beyonce reporters? Bottom dwellers going to dwell. Gannett hollowed out a, a shattered organization that I believe was prevented from a merger that might have saved it or at least ended the suffering, is looking for ways to get get them clicks, get them clicks, and having, you, you can't, How's the the UN reporter? How's the how's the Gannett's reporter on the opioid epidemic? How any hires there? No, We're, but we will hire a Taylor Swift or a Beyonce reporter. Oh, I loved this. The Washington Post has the new phone call etiquette: text first and never leave a voicemail. And reporter Heather Kelly asks, when is it okay to leave voicemails, call multiple times in a row, or take a call in public? I loved, I loved it. suggests that a, an etiquette expert and people of, she says, we spoke to an etiquette expert and people of all ages about their own phone pet peeves to come up with the following guidance to help everyone navigate phone calls in 2023. Okay, these are the rules. Don't leave a voicemail. Agree. They're an artifact of the days before text messages. And there, there is one exception. If you want to tell somebody you love them or you want them to hear your voice and you can't talk to them, I certainly understand that. But you could just send a voice memo. Okay. Text before calling. Uh, calling someone with, without warning could feel stressful to the recipient. I'm with you, Chris. No no need to text before calling. It, I mean, it, it depends. It's, it's, it's courteous if you know somebody's probably busy to text and say, hey, uh, let me know when you have five minutes. I want to give you a call. But no, it is not because the stress that the recipient may feel. It's just it would be courteous to arrange a time to have a phone call. What about you don't need to answer the phone? Well, obviously. Well, if it's there are some people for whom I always answer the phone. If it's Jessica or it's the boys or it's if, if it's you certainly if it was Nate Moore if I <laughs> it, obviously no no for the for for people who you got to have your priority list right and you can't just blow off calls from the people who are important to you but if you're busy I mean obviously you can't take the call if you're doing something you you can't take the call but you need to call them back forthwith couple more emotions are for voice facts are for text word Many, many things don't need to be a phone call at all. When you're trying to decide on the best method of communication, consider what it is you want to say. I totally agree. Some things don't need to be a phone call. Use video voicemails judiciously. I don't even know what that is. Well, unless it's an emergency, please hold. Yes. If you call somebody okay. and, they, and, and they don't answer, you can then send them a text and tell them the nature of the call. There's another great text. You call somebody, they don't answer. 
it's great to then send him a text and say, hey, wanted to talk to you about the future of orcas in the Pacific Northwest. Call me at your convenience. That's good. <laughs> what about don't use speakerphone in public? Oh, come on. When will it when will it end? When will our long national so good. when will our long national nightmare end of people? And of course, you know me. I don't want to hear your phone call, obviously, but I also don't want to hear you watch your video. And the number of people who at restaurants, in public spaces, feel like it's okay just to blast. And the speakers on phones are pretty good now. Stop it. Get earbuds or just put it up to your ear. Stop doing this. Chris, last week we talked about Dave Portnoy oh, yeah. of Barstool Sports trying to upend the Washington Post piece about his pizza fest, which did appear to be a hit piece in the works. And that piece came out on earlier this week. Headline, Pizzerias Navigate Buzz Backlash Around Dave Portnoy's Pizza Festival. And I thought it was the piece was a total dud. And my impression was that it was sort of defanged by Portnoy's yes. intervention. What was your thought? hundred, You're 100% right. The Portnoy's defanging was pretty thorough here because the reporter was writing it. This is Emily Heil. The reporter was writing it under the knowledge that it would be viewed as a hit piece. And it ended up being sort of a muted version of it. But I guess I would say this. It's kind of, it would, it's kind of interesting to think about what happens because, for example, Portnoy recently gave the lowest rating ever for he had ever given, I guess, to a pizza place. Colin and Nate will, can fill in the details for us later, but I guess it was his lowest ever rating and the place had a sensational run of business, right? Because it was in, in the stonks era of online bros, it became a badge of honor that this was the worst one. And so this pizzeria got a lot of business. Talking about this in a, a phenomenon way, it's kind of interesting talking about whether or not these pizzerias feel unsafe because of the cringy bros who populate a lot of the barstool universe seems, as you say, a dud. Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And Chris... Mine was about a moment in the debate, and I want to play that moment right now. Ten cents on the gallon in South Carolina. As the UN ambassador, you literally Bring it, put $50,000 on <laughs> curtains in a $15 million subsidized location. Next. You got bad information. First of all, I fought the gas tax in South Carolina multiple times against the just establishment. Go to you, just go to YouTube. Against the establishment. You, just go to and YouTube you want to know what that yourself. 10 cent yep. was? When they wouldn't pass the gas tax, the establishment and the companies wanted me to do it so much that I said the only way I will Here's pass what it you have if you will give us three All you have to do is go watch Nikki Haley on YouTube. This was my obsession because I, of course, have not forgotten the September 13th 2018 New York Times piece on those curtains. And I thought Tim Scott has got to know that that was a BS piece 
And I was surprised, actually, that he would level that it's a fake story against Nikki Haley and that she would not seize the moment more. So in this piece, the New York Times, the headline was it initially was Nikki Haley spends $52,701 on curtains for residents of U.N. Envoy. And it was quickly updated with the following editor's note that said an earlier version of this article and headline created an unfair impression about who was responsible for the purchasing question. When Nikki R. Haley is while Nikki R. Haley is the current ambassador to the United Nations, the decision on leasing the ambassador's residence and purchasing the curtains was made during the Obama administration, according to current and former officials. The article should not have focused on Ms. Haley, nor should a picture of her have been used. The article and headline have now been edited to reflect those concerns, and the picture has been removed. So I was surprised that Tim Scott would attack Nikki Haley over this, and I was surprised Nikki Haley would not say that to Tim Scott, I am shocked that you don't recall the New York Times basically retracted that story and that you would employ that sort of attack against me. I, and I thought it was a missed opportunity. She she rebutted the facts in she did, particular. She did one line, you know. She, you know, no, that was the Obama administration and yeah. look it up and you're not right about that. And they, they had a little back and forth over that. But you're right. It would have been a more effective talking point to say, I can't believe that you're lifting the already debunked talking points of the New York Times. Your obsession? This is a great piece from Jack Butler, former American Enterprise Institute policy gnome, who is now at National Review. He wrote this piece for something called American Habits, which I am not familiar with, but the piece is superb. And the premise the headline, Media Obsession Over Washington, Bad for Federalism. Yes, this is something that I wrote about a lot in my book, Broken News, now available in paperback, that was when local news hollows out, the substitute is national news. The only reliable national news story is politics, because that's really the only thing that all of America shares in common consistently is the federal government and the office of the president in particular. And what uh, Jack Butler is pointing to here are the ways with specifics about how the substitution of low quality national political news for local news keeps us oriented away from the system of government that we have, which is one of subsidiarity in which what matters most is what's closest to you, for one in which our gaze remains eternally transfixed on Washington, which is not where it's supposed to be and cannot produce good results and leads us to the populist bullcrap that uh, we are wading through because politicians will continue to offer massive solutions to problems that they cannot remedy. And when they fail to remedy those problems, they will say, what we need is more power. If only we had more power, we could give you the things that you wanted. Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. We have a note from Alan in Washington, D.C., who says, Hi, wretches. Your item on the Noah Fellman nuptials was interesting in a small world kind of way. 
I know Noah a bit, having worked briefly with him in Iraq when he was consulting on their constitution. He's a fine fellow and very down to earth. I've also read a couple of his books, which are good reads, and I highly recommend them. The other interesting item is that, like Noah, I too have attended a cockfight in Bali. It's my only cockfight to date, but I guess I can check a 10 Balinese cockfight off my bucket list. Anyway, keep up the good work. Okay, good to know. This is further evidence Uh, to me that we have to have a wretches gathering here in Washington at some point, because if we have an audience that includes Balinese cockfight attendees who've also been stationed in Iraq- We must, we must gather, but I can offer you this from, and I have, I, a critic of promiscuous anonymity, uh, will explain that I have granted anonymity to the following correspondent on the grounds that the information they provide could harm them. But here is from the wretches correspondent in Cambridge. I have to say that when I read the piece about Noah Feldman, my first thought was how I was how was I supposed to take this man seriously in advanced constitutional law on Thursday afternoon? As per normal, he waltzed in and began lecturing as normal. Then, hilariously, about halfway through the class, while making a point about the Obergfell case, he asked how many of us had attended a wedding in the last year. Most of the hands went up, and he said, that makes sense. You're all the age for thinking about marriage. Pregnant pause. Well, I guess, well, sometimes that age extends a little longer, quickly pivots. I will just say the anecdote in the story that has made the most waves around the rarefied halls of Cambridge is that no one has any trouble believing he would be thumping his chest repeatedly, saying that he loves himself unconditionally. (laughs) That's been pretty evident over the years. Zing. Zing. That is great. And this is wonderful. Ted in Warrenton, Virginia writes, morning. In the recent episode, you all discussed aspartame. In the confluence of politics and media, a funny story that my hero in life, my grandfather, was a media political hand and the original defender of aspartame. In fact, after a career in the military and eventually in the Ford administration, he left D.C. with none other than Don Rumsfeld. They worked at the company that accidentally discovered the product, G.D. Searle. My uncle Tom, 18 years, my dad's junior and still at home, in fact, helped name the product Equal, which was called Equa in its testing phase. But Uncle Tom simply asked, why not just call it Equal then if it is equal to sugar? If you have five minutes as an old ink-stained wretch, albeit one who warns against nostalgia, see below here for a great story in the Chicago Tribune. Perhaps Eliana will enjoy too, but I don't have her email to annoy her. Have a great day. Uh, And the story is about... I believe uh, Ted's uncle and his role on what would have been a Rumsfeld presidential campaign. And a, w- with, you, with, a, with, with good, with good color, good jokes. And it is not nostalgia. I think Mr. Greener, because it's just a little, a little vignette, a little, a little slice of the way things used to be. That's okay. And that brings us Chris to your favorite time of the week. I am forced to say something nice, but you must lead by example. From Mediaite, Michael Wolf reveals Tucker Carlson was the source of DeSantis' dog kick story he publicly denied. This was a, a, a good laugh for me. We talked last week about how was it true or not true that Ronnie D would have kicked Tucker Carlson's spaniel under the table. It's a matter of some debate. And then, of course, we are told that it was Carlson himself 
who provided that anecdote, which is which is very much in keeping with what we know about how that world works. Okay, let me add to this. And we're still left with, is it true or is it not true? Both, is it true or is it not true? Just because Carlson said it doesn't mean it's true. And then, do we even believe that Michael Wolf, because Michael Wolf said Carlson said it, that he actually said it? Because my immediate thought when reading this was, where's the tape? Like Where's you're writing tape? a book, you go do inter- <laughs> you go do interviews for people. Like if I were Michael Wolf and Tucker really said this to me, I would have just released the tape. I think I think the the larger takeaway for me is who cares what spinners who spin who are spinning stuff believe me here, but don't believe me there. Whether it's Carlson or Wolf or whomever, it's like okay, what you know, whatever. This is a real like you know, get in the mud, roll around with a pig. Yes, it quite. So, quite so. And you don't end up with a bag of delicious ham. Right. Mine was the Washington Post op-ed, which was ridiculous, but I thought I would have totally published this op-ed because very funny. But from Katie Hill, apropos the scandal surrounding the candidate for the Virginia House of Delegates, Susanna Gibson, who was live streaming her intimate moments in her bedroom with her husband and Katie Hill, who was drummed out of Congress, her ex-husband leaked naked pictures of her with a staffer and threesomes and all this stuff. Uh, She she published an op-ed in The Washington Post. Women's bodies should not be a matter of public interest. Good luck with that argument. And and she was the one who was her estranged husband leaked personal private photographs and salacious details to try to harm her, whereas the woman in Virginia was doing it for money. She was doing it right. even after her campaign began. And to to suggest that the two things are the same, Katie Hill, come on. I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, Chris, that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. And sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches for Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.